0: Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome everyone and thanks for downloading another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is retired US Marine and author of Terror to Triumph, Chris Whitmore. Chris served as a sniper in Ramadi in Fallujah in Iraq in 2005 and 2007. He then retained as a UH-1 crew chief in gunner and completed a tour of Helmand Province in that role in 2010. Chris' book outlines his tours in both countries and his adjustment to the civilian world on leaving the Marines whilst continuing to deal with his PTSD which he developed as a result of his service. It's a story of how Christie's family went through each deployment, dealing with the trauma and death, and finally finding success against the odds. So, Chris, thanks for coming to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, any sort of previous service in the family, and what made you become a Marine?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for uh, having me on here and making this work. Basically, I grew up in a military family. All the men in my family all served, uh, whether it be in the, the Army, the Navy. They were real active in Vietnam and the different branches. The biggest factor for me was definitely my my grandfather, who was in the Navy on in Hawaii during the bombings in 41 that jump started all that stuff, and he actually was a, a silver Star winner during that whole event. You know when the time came, I knew I wanted to be in the military. It was kind of a um, pathway, kind of like, hey, everyone else is in the military. You're going to join the military whether you like it or not kind of thing. But I knew that I didn't want to float around on a boat. I knew I didn't want to be in the army. And for as long as I could remember, my mother always reminds me. She's like, oh, the first time you saw the Marines in their dress uniform, you were hooked, line and sinker. So I always looked at them as being the best, the hardest, something I always kind of Followed in my own life. I was like, well, if it's the hardest, that's what I want to do. And so I ended up joining the Marines. The first four years were great. You know, got to uh, be stationed in Hawaii as well on the same base my grandfather was in, you know, got out and rejoined in 04. But it's been, uh, it was just kind of a bouncing around Military kid.
0: And did your grandfather talk about Pearl Harbor? did your uncle,
1: your uncle was a paratrooper in Vietnam. did, Did both of them talk about the service to you at all? You know, I, I really wish they would have back then growing up. I was kind of mentioned in the book as well. I was like, well, you know, why don't they, why don't they share their stories? Why don't they, you know, it's kind of like their little, not their brag sheet, but their kind of rite of passage a little bit. They never would though, especially not my grandfather. He was very, very hush. If we ever asked him about something he would either change the subject or just walk away. My uncles who were in the army or in the navy during Vietnam wouldn't talk about anything, and it it really kind of bugged me. To me, it felt uh, you know what they don't want to talk about it. There must be, you know, maybe it's so long ago they just don't remember certain certain facts or aspects of it. Ironically, after my experiences during the different deployments. People will ask me, like, hey, what about this event or what about this or something, you know, tell us about Iraq in 05 or something like that. It, it's weird that it's like going back in time. I just kind of, oh, you know, how about that sporting game or how about that, uh, you know, man, it's hot outside. And I completely changed the subject. Looking back at it, I sometimes will laugh. I'm like, wow, now I, now I kind of understand. It's not that they don't or we don't want to discuss what happened. It's just like we're kind of maybe protecting in a way the – the people who didn't live through it, we're trying to protect them from some of the horrors, and we don't want to unload our stuff onto them. That's probably an element of
0: protecting yourself as well, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I think so. Because it, it kind of, which kind of leads into what we were talking about before we started recording, though. But kind of leads into this this huge number that's being created here and over there as well. Uh, with people who don't talk about it, they bottle it up so much that. It's kind of like shaking a um, a bottle of Coke, you know, with, with a lot of carbonation. It's eventually going to, it's got to go somewhere, and mm. and usually it doesn't just fizzle out. It just expands, expands, and you know when you press that relief button, it's it, it's
3: never a good thing. Do you think maybe it's because if they haven't shared that experience, it's very difficult to get that across to them. But if you talk to your friends who you serve with you can relate all the stories you can talk about you get you you understand it more but when you're trying to explain to someone who's never been there never experienced it it's twice as hard to you can't you can't get across what operations are like
1: yeah and it's I, i think that's definitely true i think like you know sitting around at the you know having a barbecue or having a you know get together with friends it's It's easy. But even then, it's kind of it's such a different tone of voice too. like when you're talking about it, you you kind of try and laugh it off a little bit. Some of the stuff you're like, oh, that was that was funny. And in reality, most people are thinking like, buddy, what what is wrong with these people? Like, what is funny about that? It's kind of the uh, that relief valve, you know, like laughter is and I've kind of learned this as I've gone along. Laughter is kind of the best medicine where if you can laugh about it and process it that way, where laughter is happy, for the most part, it's a good way to to let that pressure out. Yeah, it's just weird, you know, the, the camaraderie that, that occurs over there, then you, you know, don't talk to these people for, I don't know, 10 plus years, and now all of a sudden, here they are, and you're talking again, it's kind of like, not a day has passed by, It's it's kind of strange, but... I think it's quite
0: unique among service people because you and I had a video conference call before we started recording this one just to see how we both got on and were we both suitable for this conversation. But we clicked within about five minutes. Uh, And initially I was dreading talking to you going, well, what if we don't get on? But, you know, (laughs) we're two countries apart. I was army, you were marines. Separated by common language, you know, American and English. Scottish. I think that's, Scottish. <laughs> Scottish, yes, Scottish. That, <laughs> but that, ser, that service bond, we had no problem talking to each other and there's a lot we could identify with.
3: You mentioned about um, you, you've been in the Marines twice, so firstly before 9-11 and then after that world changing event. Can you tell us about your first enlistment and why you decided to get out?
1: The first four years in the Marines was awesome you know got to nothing was going on. The initial 91 92 three week push into Iraq thing was was done and over with before, long before I even joined. It was something I always wanted to do. there was no conflict so I was like, ah, you know what this is gonna be awesome. Me and my friend uh, went down, went to boot camp, I went to Hawaii he went to Cuba as a security guard. I won that one. <laughs> um and, and being in hawaii was was great it was it was you know the first experience it was kind of a uh, what would you call it uh, a quick way to grow up you know it, it's no more uh mom dad you know to the rescue it was hey you're on your own here's the bills here's you're either going to grow up, or you're going to they'll, they'll destroy you. During that enlistment was exciting. You know, we went to uh, Mount Fuji, Japan, Korea, uh, Okinawa, Japan, up and down the coast. It, it was just great. The second deployment was a little different. We were all set, and over there we had the you know the the pagers way back in the day before like all this cool technology. And every time it would go off, we'd have to go stand in formation. It was accountability. You know, we were like a quick reaction force. For something happened, you know, which nothing was going on. So we are like, okay, cool, whatever. Let's go stay in formation and have some fun. We had all our gear staged. We we're getting ready to go back to Hawaii. I was on my, uh, the last deployment, I was only probably, you know, a year and a half out from, from getting out the first time, all kicking back, you know, having fun, laughing, joking. And all of a sudden this, the pager goes off. You know, we ended up walking over to the formation. We're like, okay, this is stupid, but we're, We're going home. So who cares? You know, what's another 10 minutes, you know, waiting on the bus anyway, Well, we get over there and they tell us you guys are the only ones trained. You guys are need to go over there get your stuff off the pallet. There's stuff going on in Cambodia back then in 97. We're going over there and we're like, wait, no, 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 we're going home. We're going back to Hawaii. They're like, you have 15 minutes. Go. Uh, We ended up going to Thailand. And during that time in Cambodia, it was kind of like the movie Tears of the Sun in a way. There was a big uprising in Cambodia. The royal family had been killed and held up in a hotel with a bunch of Americans. So we ended up deploying over to Cambod- or uh, Thailand right along the border of Cambodia. And we were able to be with some great company, you know uh, – A SEAL team was there. The big uh, Army 1-1 was there. And, of course, you know, we were only over there for a few weeks. And, you know, we definitely did some things that, ironically, are not in any of the books. It's kind of like it didn't happen, which... Anyone who was there knows it happened, but it was it's kind of like you did it cool, but we're not going to add that in there, and which was fine. After I got out in 1999, I ended up meeting my my wife of 22 years now. Uh, moved down to Houston, Texas. Did a lot of different jobs. I ended up becoming a Texas State Trooper up in Tyler, Texas, where I did a lot of death notifications, accidents, things like that. They were absolutely disturbing. But of course, right after I got out in 1999, You know, everything was still very simple compared to how it is now. Um, And, of course, we all remember where we were, what we were doing, what was going on on September 11th, which was such a seismic shift in the country. uh, Just everything completely changed. You know, like one of my youngest nieces just graduated college. They were born in 2001. 2001. And they have – I mean, they know about it because it's it's all over the place. I constantly talk to my wife about this. I was like, there's a lot of people like our generation who wasn't alive – during Pearl Harbor they know about it but they didn't live through it you know watching everything live on TV you know hearing all the news reports seeing you know the people jumping or falling from the buildings you know things like that this younger generation has no idea about 911 they just they see it like we see Pearl Harbor
0: they've li- they've lived with the consequences but they've never really st- that step change that those attacks on the twin towers caused Yeah, you i know, even now i can look at footage of the twin towers and i still find it horrific
1: for sure i just still can't believe it really happened and it's kind of like like all that stuff though the 9-11 oklahoma city bombing like all these horrific events that are have occurred during like our generation per se in my mind you know in the the battles and Iraq, Afghanistan, things like that. And I can't help but wonder and and hope this younger generation learns something. And these kind of events, you know, 20 years or whatever, we were in Iraq or Afghanistan, by far the longest war that I think the U.S. has been involved in. And I'm just hoping, I'm like, oh, I hope this new generation does not have to go through what we've gone through
0: well, there was an argument, wasn't there? I mean, it's a whole different podcast in itself, that really the West and America should have taken a pause for breath before they launched into the, the so-called war on terror. Yeah. You know, and by taking a breath, maybe a, another response would have been formulated with a clearer head. But we are where we are, and I think it's a good moment to the podcast just to remind people that the war in Iraq, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, it seems to have been overshadowed by the war in Afghanistan. but yeah, both. Definitely. But the casualties in both theatres for the American military was significant, and it's worth remembering these sacrifices. And the following figures I'm about to spout are from the U.S. Department of Defence. So, Afghanistan, you had 4,418 killed in action and in accidents. And of that 4,418, 3,481 were KIA and 31,994 wounded in action. Uh, And and again, people forget, you know, if you're in a contact in Afghanistan or Iraq and it's one soldier or one Marine reported death, you can guarantee there's five or six seriously injured with life-changing injuries in that contact, generally speaking. In Iraq... In American forces, there was 2,218 killed in accidents and in action, with 1,833 of those killed in action solely. And again, another 20,093 wounded in action. So coloss- colossal figures, even for a big country like America. Uh,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And, it, and, and being in both, I don't want to call them battles, but being in both countries at various times and, and during significant events, looking back, I, I still can't believe you know Ramadi 2005 i mean that was seven what 17 almost 18 years ago but even after all this time that has passed from 2005 to to date there's so many that have come back from iraq and afghanistan but they they haven't come back they they're still there or they're still they're no longer around and it's just such a staggering statistic backed although it may be the longest war it's not the first one I hope it's the last one, but let, I mean, let's be real. It's not going to be the last one, but yet we're still making the same mistakes with people returning that we did in World War One, World War II.
0: I saw a very interesting podcast. If I can find the link, I'll put it on the podcast notes. But there's an a American academic talking about post-traumatic stress. And she said now, she said about how it's changed over 100 years. And she was saying that she doesn't call it post-traumatic stress disorder. She just calls it post-traumatic stress because calling it a disorder implies that your reaction to a stressful event shouldn't be there you know so she's taking the disorder out so she just calls it PTSD and she's divided it into two actually she was saying that in her mind in the In the modern world, you have PTS, post-traumatic stress. And she has something she calls moral trauma. And she's saying that PTS can be from being, uh, you know, bombed, shelled, shot at. And she's saying increasingly, though, she she sees people with moral trauma PTS. And that's where somebody's seen a child getting killed or they have called in an airstrike on a building that's resulted in the death of a family. And moral trauma can also come about from fighting the wrong war. If, if that makes sense. You know, yeah, you're in yeah. Afghanistan <coughs> and you're why the hell are we here? And yeah. Whereas if you fought in World War Two, that was far more definitive, wasn't it?
3: Well, I suppose if if, if you come back and the public and the political will has changed direction, then you're seen as being fighting an unjust war, then you start feeling guilt yeah. from that. And I think if you look at Vietnam, was probably the example where at the beginning everyone was very supportive, but when people came back towards the end in the late 60s and 70s, public opinion changed massively called
0: baby killers at the airport yeah and And, they
3: they looked at soldiers in a different light yet it wasn't the soldiers fault they just went off they were scripted or they volunteered but it wasn't you know the politicians didn't take that responsibility and they left actually the guilt was left on the forces not on the politicians but i also think you go to a conflict zone and you can go out there full of high ideals
0: but at the end of the day those get drummed out of you quite quickly, and a lot of time it comes down to you're fighting for the guy on the left or the woman on the left. Yeah, and it's about survival. And I think a lot of time the high ideals are sort of gone quite quickly.
1: They, yeah, they can very much fade out very fast. You know, you're excited and or not excited. That's not the right word at all. Uh, you're you're over there. And you're like, and then over a certain amount of time. For me, I think if I remember back to the book and things like that, it was probably a couple of weeks. Like, all bets were off. Like, I just, I just want to make it through seven months, you know. And, I want to get out of
0: here alive. And that comes across in your book very well, actually, when, when I read it. You know, it does boil <laughs> down to those. All you want to do each day is eat, sleep, and survive. Everything <laughs> the first else. two are normally in short supply.
3: And, and, and I think there's operations like, like Iraq and Afghanistan, because they were so enduring, that you were going back on tours. So the same soldiers, every two, you know, every two years, you're going back for another tour. So it's a cumulative. So after a while, there is going to be that. I just want to get through the tour. Yeah, because absolutely. I know I've got another one coming in a couple of years. Um, I, I think when, the, when an operation lasts for 20 years, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in the British Army, all they've known is Afghanistan. And they've done numerous tours out there and continued on and almost complete their whole career preparing to go, going, recovering from it, and getting ready to go again. <laughs> the
1: nasty cycle that you just get trapped, yeah. not trapped we in, but your you're time. just, yeah. Yeah,
3: it's a yeah. So Chris, what motivated you to re-enlist after the events of nine eleven?
1: Definitely after 9-11, and, and ironically, shortly after nine eleven, my wife and I were, you know, we were engaged for a long time, and we were both like, yeah, you know, let's not get married, whatever. But as soon as 9-11 happened, that December, we went to Lake Tahoe, California, and ended up getting married. As time progressed, you know, I ended up joining the state troopers in 2003, right during that initial Push back into Iraq. That initial, all right, here we go again. As I was sitting there going through the academy, you know, we started with I think 94 people or something like that in the academy. But once those bombings started, uh, we were all sitting around watching the TV as the planes went in and started bombing Iraq. Slowly but surely, these different guys who were in the the reserves that you know did the one week in a month, two weeks in the summer to keep their their status going. All of a sudden, started disappearing out of the class, and it dawned on me. I'm like, "Oh, they're on TV now." As time progressed through the academy, I still had a lot of friends who were serving in the military, and all of a sudden, those names started coming back on the blotter and on the uh, the injured or the the killed list. You know, I, I needed to decide. You know, I've got to focus on this. That that's that's not my life anymore. But it, it's hard when you you keep seeing the same people that you know, and you're like, oh, no, you know, like, what is going on? But I ended up graduating the academy, uh, sent to a small town. And as I was working these different accidents and these death notifications on on doors, I I couldn't help but think, man, families are either getting death notifications from me saying their son and daughter were killed in a car accident for whatever reason, it's the same notifications as, you know, the chaplain and these officers are doing with these families. On guys coming back, I mean, it, it's it's a different thing, but it, it's still notifying families that they're no longer coming home. About two thousand four, after only about a year into being a, a trooper, I was like, I, I've got to go back in. So I think it was a, a sense of these guys have come back and they're hurt, killed, and they can't. But you know what? I can go over there and naively thinking, looking back, I can go over there and write the wrong, or I can go get vengeance. In reality, one person is not going to... Is that uh, the idealism of youth, do you think? I think so, because I was still young and naive, And but in reality, you know, looking back, I said, you know what, I want to go back in. And I even told the recruiter, <laughs> which this had to be his like greatest day in the whole world. I went back in, and I told him, I said, I want to rejoin the military. I don't care what job you give me, and I don't care what duty station you send me to. His mouth must have been watering like... You know, coming back from Iraq <laughs> after, you know, getting a 20-pound steak. I mean, he just had to be like, you're going back in the infantry? I'm like, fine. You're going to 29 Palms. Where the heck is 29 Palms, California? And my wife asked that, too. She's like, where is this? And they pulled it up on a map. They're like, right there. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, June of 04, um, I was back in, and off we went. This big unknown, uh, just like you were saying, Kev, the the cycle was deploy, come back, train for— Seven, yeah. eight months, and you're going right back because it, it was such – there was only four infantry battalions there in 29 Palms. So every seven months, you were going to your training. You came back from a deployment. You had three-week reset on leave or whatever, post-deployment leave, come back, and immediately hit the ground running. And when I first got to 29 Palms, the unit that I joined just literally got back maybe two months after we got there. They went on leave, came back, and we immediately started training. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys just got back. What are we doing? Like, why are we already gearing up to go? Within a few weeks of starting that, they're like, hey, September of next year, we're not even less than a year. Uh, We're going to be deploying back to Iraq, to uh, Ramadi, that hard reality that, okay, this isn't In the 90s when you know hawaii and deployed a you know mount fuji and do all this training and fun stuff this is like the new reality of the military and it's
0: but isn't that the the sort of the 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 dichotomy of being a marine or a soldier you know in peacetime you want to go to war and then suddenly it's thrust upon you (laughs) and it's like one of those oh oh, hell moments that they've they've, they've, they've called my bluff and they're sending me in operations
1: yeah like watching uh, yeah. them uh, play poker on TV it's like, oh they've got this great hand, but they're bluffing you're exactly right yeah. it, it's all yeah. cool to play play war if you will until it's it's time to go do the work. It's...
0: You went back to 29 Palms End and then you went off on your first tour of Ramadi in Iraq in 05. What was that like? What role were you fulfilling out in that tour? During
1: that time, uh, literally right before the the deployment happened, they were having a tryout for the scout sniper platoon. And I was like, well, I'm back in and and here comes that young youth, if you will, still. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I, I tried out for the scout sniper team and uh, was selected. And then within, ooh, I don't know, five months, maybe it was, it was time to deploy. So we ended up deploying to Ramadi, Iraq during that time. There's been different battles and different people have said different things about it, you know, whether it be, was in 05 or 06. But when we got over there, they quickly let us know. The city is um, blacklisted for any low-flying aircraft. They had to stay within at least 1,500 feet off the ground, at least three or four miles off um, out of the city because the threat was so high. There was no elected officials. There was no government whatsoever in that city. It was kind of the Wild West For the next seven months, it was going to be not every day like they portray on the news or in movies. There's not battles every single day, or that, which would, like we were talking about the first time, it'd be kind of nice if it was like that. But it was, you know, a battle, three or four days, nothing. All of a sudden, something would jump off for two minutes, then nothing for two weeks. I think that in itself is such a psychological torment. Mm. If it's every single day, you're like, okay, we're going to get in battles every single day. But when it happens and then there's a pause, you allow yourself almost to to like, OK, maybe it's not so. Blah, blah, blah. And then it, it it's it's kind of like it's a, up and down like
0: a roller coaster, isn't it?
1: Of like a, scaring a, a kid. But your unit took casualties quite
0: quickly, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it was within the first four days in to the deployment. And we haven't even changed out and really actually started our seven months yet. We were just waiting to um, right seat, left seat with the outgoing unit because they were going to show us the city and the routes and things like that. And right from the get-go, we, we heard this loud rumbling like an earthquake constantly almost every night. And we're like, what is this? And you know, kind of make light of it in the book a little bit. Um, but like you said, I don't want to give away too much. But they told us that was counter-battery. And they were actually shooting out to defend the guys out in the cities. But there was that one day, right from the jump, we're, we're walking to the, the little cafeteria or chow hall, as we call it. You know, normal, nice, cool September day in Iraq. The group I was with, half of them stopped to use the bathroom and to smoke on these concrete barriers. You know, I was a, a big smoker back then. So I was like, well, you know what, I'll, I'll stop as well. And then, ah, you know what, no, I'm going to stay with my friends. So I kept walking to the, the chow hall. Well, about... Right as we're opening the door, we heard this big, loud explosion again. We're like, okay, uh, you know, good on the, you know, whoever is getting protected out there. You know, it's too bad for the enemy. But, you know, that's what it's them or us. So we eat thinking nothing of it until we get back and find out that all those Marines that we knew, that had stopped right there on that concrete barrier, a indirect rocket had come into, um, on the base and detonated right next to the barrier, killing or wounding some very close guys to us within our company, but also, I think, wounding probably 20 at least through shrapnel, wow. losing limbs. Swanberg, one of the guys who was really known to everyone within the group I was with, ended up thankfully dying instantly. We didn't have to... Uh, suffer but the rocket hit right basically in the center of them and there was nothing there was nothing to collect. It happened uh you know instantly. There was no there was no warnings. And, and I think that started the mindset of it doesn't matter where you are within the city or on this big base. From that point forward, was that jump start into you know what? It, it doesn't matter if you're here, if you're sleeping, if you're eating, if there's nowhere that's safe. And that,
0: that's a psychological strain because normally it's, it's always nice to come back to a safe haven, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. But knowing that I, I'm only in danger when I step out those gates. But when you can't even rest and you're constantly on edge for it. Funnily enough, in preparation for this podcast for you, Chris, Kevin, and I were talking, Kevin and I both worked as civilians in Iraq. We both took more IDF fire as civilians than we ever did in our military careers when we were deployed in operations because the IDF in Iraq at the time, you know, some of the bases were getting hit 15, 20 times a day in the yeah. south. And I, and I presume, presume that was the same in the north.
1: But we had, um, uh, what do you call them, like the port on base. In... Uh, the local nationals. Yeah. And, and they would come on and clean them. I cannot help but think like the movie uh, 13 Hours, the Benghazi thing, like where that guy would come up and it looked like he was taking pictures or it looks like they were cleaning the the portajons. 5 minutes, 10 minutes after they left. You know, here comes the IDF. And I'm just like, why are we not, you know, linking this together? There's security with them. And we made sure that they're not you know, writing anything down or they're not don't have a GPS, you know, how hard is it to to take this cell phone, hide it under a seat, and it's gonna give you the coordinates where you were, sadly, as well, in 05. And I think like we talked about, if you're deployed and you lose a, a service member, it's obviously a horrible thing, but it's not something that you you kind of know is gonna happen, if you will. But when the kids get involved in it, that's a that's a whole other thing. And during that time, the insurgents were using kids with poles and white rags, like sheets. They would stand on the roofs of these buildings and would guide in the IDF by like how they would move their hands or move the flags. That's how they would adjust shooting these IDF rockets into these bases. And right from the get-go, they told us, if you see a kid on the roof doing this, they are a priority target, and they need to be taken out. And these kids probably weren't 12 to 14 years old. They didn't know any better. Well, I think they know better, but they they don't have a choice. They're like, you're either going to do this or we're going to kill your whole family. So – of, of course, they're going to have to do that. Luckily, you know, we never saw that when we were out on missions because who knows what kind of mess I would be, you know, if that was the case. But they told us right from the get go, like, hey, these are priority targets. We had to quickly process it to where it's like, yes, they're kids. If we don't stop that, there's 20 plus Americans at least that are not going to, you know, make it home. So it, it's such a, a psychological thing it's so hard to put into words like what that torment is knowing uh, that uh,
0: uh, you must be grateful that's a test you never had to come up against but there was reading in your book uh chris there was an incident with a child that sort of left a mark on you are you okay
1: to talk about that we some of the other podcasts this has been kind of like the one of those topics that usually gets brought up and it's, it's definitely one of those ones that stick with me the most. Um, even writing the book by far the hardest during a recent interview too. They asked, what was your worst day in the military? And, and that story always comes to, comes to mind. And the person who was interviewing me that asked that actually it kind of brought a tear to their eye. And I'm like, wow, I've never made someone cry during an interview. This is a little weird. We uh we ended up taking over a a house with a phenomenal family. The husband was super intelligent, been to a few uh like colleges. He had like quantum physics books and I mean he was just the smartest guy ever. And of course over there, you know, they've got the husband's got a bunch of wives, a bunch of kids, things like that. So we took over their house. We moved them all into one room for ease of just controlling them. And they were, were great, though. I mean, they, they're like, OK, sure. You know, they went into the room. They, they're like, hey, can we lay back down? And we're like, by all means, please, you know, it's three in the morning. We're sorry we had to wake you up but we're only going to be here three days and we'll leave. And so during the events, they would feed us, offer us food, things to drink, chai tea. They were great. I mean, it was kind of like just being over at your uncle's house. One night, I'll never forget, though, I'm on watch, and they set up this big, giant, comfortable chair for us even so we're not sitting on the concrete floor with the Claymore Clackers guarding the doors. And all of a sudden, there's this noise behind me. And I spin around with my pistol, like, you know, how did someone get in without warning devices? And here's this little girl, maybe eight years old, maybe if not younger, standing there with this raggedy bear that looks like it went through about 400 mud puddles and dried up bear and this raggedy blanket. I don't know if she just was like, hey, this is my chair. Get out. You know, or if. Something startled her. So I stood up and she ended up crawling into the chair, curling up with the animal, the blanket, right back to sleep. And each person who came on shift, that little girl just stayed there. Like she she felt safe to do that. But as the sun came up on the last day, you know, she would get up, run back into her room. Our three days were up. We left. A few weeks later, we decided to come back to that house because there was a lot of IEDs getting planted with a great field of view from the second story of this building. When we get back there about three in the morning, we're kind of naively excited. We're like, oh, this family's so cool. You know, we're we're not going to be sleeping on concrete and like rats and rodents running around the floors. I mean, it's going to be a normal, warm house. When we get back there, kind of when you approach a place or you go into somewhere and you just kind of get that sickly feeling in your stomach there's something weird here there something's just not right so we start waking up the family and here comes the the man of the house and he's limping okay you know who knows but i mean in iraq who knows what could have happened and then here comes one wife here comes another wife and we're like okay and then here comes their oldest daughter, who was probably 17 or 8 I mean, she was basically a full grown woman. Where's the rest of your family? Like, are they at another house? You know, do we need to worry about them coming back? And he just looked down and he didn't even have to say it. We kind of just knew as it turned out about three days after we left, the insurgents showed up. They found out uh, because they were everywhere. I mean, this house was here. Each one of those houses maybe had an insurgent or, some or was related to an insurgent or just something was there was a link so regardless they found out that we had taken over their house or that the dad had allowed us to be there and you know we engaged a few insurgents they were planning IEDs and you know took them out so i'm sure it hurt their cause they showed up beat the man of the house killed one of his wives to make it even worse they took this little girl out into the street in front of the entire neighborhood with everyone out in the street And executed her in the street and killed her as a lesson to all these other people. Like, if you're here, this is what's going to happen if you allow the U.S. service members to take over your house. And what's so horrible, it's not like we gave them a choice. I mean, we're not going to say, hey, can we borrow your house for three days? We told them, hey, we're going to take over your house and... We'll be here three days and then we'll leave. As soon as we heard that, all the life and the wind, I mean, it's like getting punched in the stomach like 20 times. I mean, everyone was just felt sick. And the guy's like, we'll go in here. You guys can take over the house. And we said no. We and, and we called in for the, the QRF, our ride, basically. I was like, hey, you need to come back and get us. We're actively compromised, you know, whatever the case might be. You know, this is in a safe place. And they took us back to base. Platoon sergeant was like, what happened? And we told them. And he's like, all right, you guys are off for uh, the next um, 13 hours. You guys will go back out that next night. And we're like, oh, 13 hours, thanks. Back then, 13 hours was like, Woohoo, we had a break. Yeah, the very next night, we went back out to another house. But Do you reckon that incident
0: <clears throat> would fit into that sort of moral trauma piece that we were talking about earlier on? Did it affect <clears throat> you that badly?
1: That Yeah, I, I think um, it definitely affected me and... A lot of the guys that were were part of that. And I think the moral aspect of it in the internal battle of, oh, my God, we were there. The end result was this little kid got killed. In our minds, it was she was killed because we were there. In reality, it's not because we were there. It's because of the... The insurgents and their horrible mind where they think it's justified to kill these kids in a way of, of gaining power and control over these people. Ruling by, ruling by fear, isn't it?
3: Yes. It, absolutely.
1: No, it? And, and I've gotten a lot better. And after writing the book and talking with people over the last 17 years, I've gotten a lot better with this. I had to accept and go against the – it wasn't a moral thing where I killed the kid. It was they killed – this little girl, and we were there to do a job, but in reality, so it, it, it's it's yeah. still you very, guys. Did, you
0: you you guys didn't kill that child. They killed that child. But I can see what you're wrestling with internally. You know, it's far
1: easier because you've you've got your own set of morals. That's why you wrestle with it so so hard. Like soldier on soldier, fine, whatever. But to kill a kid, I mean, it, it's like there's something. There has to be no moral compass, or that compass is so messed up they couldn't even find their way to a parking lot.
3: So Chris, when you returned home from Iraq, you were beginning to experience PTSD, but felt compelled to go out to Iraq once more. How did you recognise PTSD in yourself, and why did you go again? What compelled you?
1: Great question. Um, Coming back initially in 2006, uh, I had no idea what... um, PTSD, whatever the acronym is now, uh, what it was, I knew something must have been wrong, but I didn't recognize it. I think it was you come home, all right, I'm, I'm not sleeping, and you rationalize and say, oh, it's because uh, the different time zones, or I can't sleep, so I'm going to drink or take, take sleeping pills. Then it be, it becomes a a routine where you almost think you rationalize it in your head where you're like, oh... I, I can't sleep, but if I but if I drink myself to sleep, then I'm actually getting rest. But there's nothing wrong with me, but I don't want to actually go out and, and be in public. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to be outside of this safe haven, if you will, you know, like where you want to come back after a mission, like, okay, I'm safe. Whew. I can decompress. But I also looking back, I was the expert at once you left the comforts or the safety of your house you know, you go out into, into public and everyone's like, man, yeah, you're looking good. You're doing great. Seeing my family, they're like, Oh, welcome back. woohoo!" You know, you're, everything's great. And I'm laughing it off, having a good time and thinking to myself, man, I've got like the perfect Halloween mask that I can pull over my face and put on this fake swagger, if you will, to the rest of the world. And I'm like, Oh, look, I'm, I'm great. But as soon as you get back to your house and your safe haven it, it's just an emotional dump. As that vicious cycle kept occurring, my wife was getting more and more worried about me because I would either be drinking, I would sit in my room, I would, I wouldn't talk, I would just be like internalizing everything. And she's like, "Man, there's something wrong." And I'm like, "No, no, I'm just readjusting. Leave me alone. I, you know, it, it's you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You weren't over there. You, you know, all that different stuff." And was wrestling with this, I said, you know what? I'm happier, as crazy as this sounds, I'm happier getting shot at and dodging IDF so I can either stay here and be miserable all the time or I can redeploy and feel at home, it, as weird as that sounds. And so my struggle was, hey, we just got back. Yeah, we're we're ramping up, but we're not going to deploy for another you know, seven, eight months to a year. Well, here's, we're in what March, April, May, May or June timeframe. I said, oh, the next battalion is leaving in January. I can jump over with them and immediately get back there. And I only have to wait maybe a third of the time versus what the unit I just was with. And so I made the, the move over there. I was back to that, that mindset of, I was so angry at all the people who were killed over there that I was like, you know, I'm going to go back and seek retribution for them and their families. I'm going to go back and right the wrongs of everything.
3: Ryan
0: Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: I was really hoping that we were gonna go back to uh, Ramadi because I'm like, oh, you know what I know this place. I know all the you know good spots to not be and things like that. And they ended up flipping the script and saying, nope, you guys are going to Fallujah outside of Fallujah, but it was more of a I had to find some place of peace and I knew where most people find peace being home like um, in the states or you know where you've grown up or lived is normally that good place. For me, I was like, I can't keep going at this crazy pace of being so unhappy and, and ruining myself, my family, my like isolating away from friends. So I, I made the choice and ended up redeploying, um, into Iraq, uh, in 07, which was, you know, a, another tormenting time. You know, I deployed, I was happy, but back here in the States, you know, my, uh, my wife ended up losing her, uh, Grandfather, who she was super close to, and a lot of other um, things occurred throughout, you know, the the different time of the deployment, and it's just, it, and there was another moral struggle, you know, it's hey, I'm happy, but you know what, everyone else over here is, is miserable, so, and everyone's like, well, why didn't you comfort the person back here? It's like, well, how do you comfort someone in the states when you're thousands of miles away, when you're worried about walking to the to get some food or the IDF or just anything. I I mean, there's such, you want to take care of the people, but you know, if I worry about this, I'm missing the bigger picture. And I I think it was, um, yeah, definitely more about that. I think it was just redeploying and getting, getting back to a happy place.
0: Or what you thought would be a happy
1: place. Yes, it's, yeah. It's probably better. And and I think we alluded to it earlier. Deploying
0: on operations, your life is simple. You don't have to worry about trivia like paying the bills and all, all those other things that you have back in the civilian world. You go out there, and as we alluded to, it's you eat, you try and get some sleep, and you go and do your job. And it's boiled down to those three things. Yep. Uh, and you don't have any of the trivia and baggage that you have. Back state side is another aspect of operations. I think that you know, I don't know. i have not experienced myself very well, but it's just it's, it's it's it can be a very simple life, even though it has all those complications that we talked about.
3: It's addictive as well. You can be, you can become addicted to operations, and you don't know that why. Adrenaline it becomes, rush. Yeah, well, I think it becomes the, that becomes the normal. Yeah, then it does. And back home, you try to resettle. You just you just can't get back into this into the sink as you was before the operation.
0: There's obviously more about that tour in your book, Chris. We don't want to take a book as we said before. We don't want to take apart your book now uh, because I, I'm encouraging people to go out and read it because it's a great read. So after that tour, you came back and you decided to retrain as a crew chief and a door gunner on uh, is it the UH-1 helicopter? Is that uh-huh. correct? Which is, if I'm right, that's sort of the iconic Huey that, yeah. <laughs> from the Vietnam films. What made you do that? I mean, obviously it's a Fantastic job! But what made you do that? (laughs) What
1: What was the training like? In a weird kind of way, I I wanted to you know, as you're walking around and carrying these heavy packs and you know doing all this crazy stuff during different missions, you know, you'd call in the helicopters and the the jets for support to get you out of a pinch. And I always thought, wow, that's that's got to be the coolest job. One, you're not carrying you know 100 pounds of crap on your back, breaking your knees and your lower back down, but you get to fly around, do your thing. And you go back and land on a big air base where everything – it's kind of like being in the, the government. You know, everything's fancy because not – you know, the officers don't want to live in the, the dirt and stuff like that, like in the, the infantry stuff. And then I wanted to save my knees and back. Well – the floor of those helicopters are not soft and easy on the knees at all. So um, (laughs) that, uh, that aspect was right out the window, but the training was absolutely incredible, you know, got fly around in these helicopters, used rockets and guns. And, you know, we, we knew their, the deployment was right around the corner, but it was just so much fun. And it was such a, it was kind of like the Top Gun movie. Everything was like flying around and, and doing these aerial things where before you would be you know, seeing these guys on the ground running around and you're like, you know, not me anymore. I'm up here. And (laughs) weirdly enough, come that 2010 deployment was kind of a a nightmare scenario for me. The training was, was exceptional. I mean, there's nothing like diving in on this target. The rockets are firing, you know, like literally uh, six inches away from you, you know, firing off the the rocket pods and you're sitting there with the machine gun firing. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like just being on the fastest roller coaster ever, but having a big machine gun, it, it was uh, like
0: rec- recruiting brochure stuff, really, oh, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely,
1: absolutely. And it was it, it was the time of my life, and you know, got to meet a lot of great people, and you know, a lot of just cool events. You know, we got to do. So a, were you
0: started. Were you starting to enjoy life a bit more as a marine at this point, or were you still being troubled in the background <laughs> by sort of the, the the
1: oncoming train of PTSD? I, I think I was definitely in re-getting back into it, like really enjoying like, okay, this is what I wish I would have been doing this the whole time. And, you know, life became a lot better. It was easier to go out. And I don't know if it was new job, new training, constantly embedded in flying maintenance, just whatever that kept my mind so busy. I didn't have time to think about it. Or if it was, I was really starting to, you know, process things to where like, okay, you know what, yeah, that was horrible, but you know, here we go. I'm sure a lot of times the Halloween mask was still on during the day, and everyone was like, Oh, yeah, this guy came from the, the infantry and you know he was a sniper and, and all this other stuff. You know, running into these pilots, you know, one of the pilots happened to be roommates at one of the colleges with one of the officers that had died right toward the end of the 05 deployment. And he was like, Oh, did you know this guy? And you know, he wanted to talk about, oh, how he was like back in college and all this stuff. And I'm just like, can I not get away from that side of things? And there was other events throughout the book that discussed that kind of stuff, too. And I'm just like, you know what? There's nowhere I can go. But but yeah, I mean, it was just like a thrill ride. It's like being a frat kid uh, in college at a party, you know, and flying around. We, you know, did the flyover for a couple like football games there in uh California. You know, during the the national anthem, we'd fly over, got to fly up near um, cool scenic points along the beach. We'd fly, you know, 50 feet off the water and like, you know, doing all these like fun acrobatic type moves, you know, up and over hills. And, you know, you see all these people on the beaches taking pictures. And it it was just cool. I mean, it was like a whole nother world that I never knew existed, but was so glad. Uh, And you have
0: been shot at. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it wasn't being shot at, got to uh, go hover up near the Hollywood sign, and people are taking pictures, and it, it's just, it's such, it was so cool that I was like, man, this is, this is the life. If this is what the deployment's going to be, ha, let's go.
3: So Chris, you deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. Tell us about that tour. Talk us through it.
1: The deployment came, it was about two weeks before my birthday. We ended up deploying over to Afghanistan. We knew about deployment in the past. I was like, okay, it it's gonna be bad, but we're flying, you know, we're gonna be fifteen hundred feet above, way off the thing and we're not actively gonna be engaged. Well, we get over there and the winter months are over, the rain, the mud, the snow, the all that stuff that Afghanistan is known for was gonna subside and it's gonna be you know, the summer months which was, was always a great time when it's a hundred and fifty degrees outside. I think that's what's wrong with the people, it's just so hot they just can't think straight. But uh <laughs> But we get over there and the unit who we were relieving was like, man, it rained. There was dust storms. There was it was freezing cold. We didn't do anything. This deployment was boring. And I'm like, let's hope this deployment's going to be like that, too. I was like, I- I'll take boring. Uh, one of the guys I actually, you know, gone through some training with to become a crew chief was in that unit. One morning they were taking off in a, in a sandstorm to go save a unit that was pinned down. The two helicopters collided like not even 50 feet off the runway, ended up crashing just off the fence. All but him ended up dying. He was really messed up, but he was the only one of the six that survived. So he was sent home, lots of surgeries, lots of stuff. He's doing really good now, but for a long time, he was teetering on that edge where something needed to intervene or he was going to, he just couldn't deal with it. That he was the only one that walked away from the crash. Well, he didn't walk away, but that was kind of a, when we heard that, I was like, Okay, this is not walking around, you know, on the thing anymore. This is things like this can happen. It doesn't happen a lot, but things like that can happen. You know, getting the deployment started, that unit left. We we took over, you know, kind of grabbed the torch and ran with it. Well, during that time, every morning you would start the shift. We were midnight to noon and then the other shift was noon to midnight. I quickly learned I knew we were going to be supporting units along the ground. That was our job to, you know, fly support missions and things like that. But I had no idea who those units were going to be. As we started to get our briefs from the intel community, they are like, hey, you guys are going to be supporting uh, 3-7, 2-7. 3-7 and 2-7 were the two units that I was with in Iraq. Now those guys where I still had a lot of close friends and um, officers that were leading were in those units still on the ground fighting. So now it just became that much more personal where I thought, Oh, you know I'm I'm meeting this guy's roommate from college, cool, whatever. Now those guys are on the ground and I'm like everything just became more personal for me. And of course, you know during that time we had the uh the Italians, we had the British um, up in uh, Sangin, they were up there. We had the Georgians, we had all these different countries were were down there as well. So I'm like, wow, okay, so we're kind of like the the guardian angels, maybe. And of course, we work in close by with the medical uh, evac teams and stuff like that, the helicopter f- hospitals and things like that. So it, it became very, very personal in a in a bad struggle because for me, it was like we were flying, you know, 1500 feet, which I'm like, yay, you know, we're up here safe. Then you hear the stories of like, Oh, this unit that I served with, you know, actively engaged, there's, you know, three guys that are wounded, there's, you know, these guys are killed. And I'm like, Oh, we need to get down there. We need to be, you know, ground level. So I was really struggling. I'm like, you know what, I I love this. But you know what, kick me out of the helicopter, let me go back there with these guys, you know, so I can be with them. And again, not like I'm going to be the saving grace during any missions but it, it was really hard to first part i was like oh i love flying back and landing and taking a hot you know cold shower every night and you know sleeping in a bed and things like that and then on the other side the angel on the left or whatever i was like oh but they're down there taking all these losses it was it was a bad do you think chris subconsciously you're chasing the bullet uh, yeah I think so because a lot of times, especially in the early deployments and in in this deployment as well, I was like, you know what, these young guys, and and I had to get over this through a lot of uh, therapy and things like that, was, man, these young guys had their whole lives ahead of them. Here I am, 30s, you know, I've had 30 years of life. These guys have only had, you know, 20. They could be the next doctors, lawyers, the cure for cancer. I mean, who knew, but I often always wrestled with why did i make it back outwardly okay inwardly it looks like a like a bad science experiment um, like all the surgeries and things like that that i've had to go through but why them and not me kind of thing and
0: that and that is classic ptsd survivors, isn't guilt. It? Su- survivor's guilt is classic yeah. ptsd isn't it and i don't oh. mean that in a pejorative way i'm not you know
1: i don't mean it like that but that 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 is a classic survivors guilt is classic ptsd yeah. it is. Oh, 100% and it, it was and it takes it took me so long. And, and there's oftentimes, times, you know, when I have a you know, a bad day or something uh, is brought up about the deployment or something like that, or you know, bad day at work. Dang it, why why didn't this happen over there and this could have all been avoided? But then on the other side of it, we often tell each other, you know, during that time, you know what? It's not about whether they made it back or not. Would they want you to be miserable and unhappy, or would they want you to live your life to the fullest and then live it that extra step for them because they can't be here. So if you're going to have, you know, one drink, have three drinks because in celebrating those guys.
0: And I think it's interesting. I think for veterans, when you talk about your friends that you've lost on deployment, you never talk about the method of how they died. You talk about their character and what they were like. And I think it goes back to that celebration of life rather than celebration of death, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
0: So, Chris, that's a very hard chapter to read in your book. And again, I, I recommend people buy it to really fully understand the experience you went through. But once you came back from Afghanistan, your next posting was to recruit future Marines. And reading those chapter in your book, it was a very difficult time for you. Your PTSD started to raise its head again. You and your wife were going through a very difficult time. And you had a very unsupportive command structure. And I think a lot of veterans could probably identify with that.
3: So Chris, you eventually secured a place at the Wounded Warrior Battalion. I've never heard of it. What is this organisation? And how did it help you?
1: When people uh, come back in get hurt or they're they're in need of like medical treatment whether that be surgery uh treatment processing out of the military they're, they're sent to the wounded warrior battalion it's a a group where like in a regular unit your job is to train deploy come back retreat that kind of thing the wounded warrior battalion is set up to where your job is to get the care that you need get the treatment if you're you know an amputee you're you're going to be put through uh making sure everything is comfortable and fitted, you know, your prosthetic. So it's it's more becomes the job of not – it's still being a Marine, but it's being – you're a patient now. You're not worrying about leading Marines, doing training, getting ready to deploy, things like that. Your job is now to focus on not your, your entire – platoon structure but it's yeah. actually where you can be selfish in a way and, and take care of yourself and that was that was particularly which is
0: important. hard it was just hard for a marine isn't it because there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a saying in the british army it's mission men and women then me you, you the, the me always comes last so Absolutely. the wounded warrior battalion, you're essentially flipping that on its head is that correct and was that quite difficult
1: it was very difficult and absolutely correct. And for me, it was these guys are are burn victims, amputees. You know, they might have only deployed for two months on their very first deployment where they've lost both their legs. And yeah, I've got you know numerous deployments, but outwardly I'm fine. I don't I don't have any you know I'm not got all my fingers, toes, and arms, legs, and all that stuff. For me, I was like I cannot be around these guys. These guys are amputees. I mean I mean here I am and. That that was a big struggle for me, where I I knew I needed treatment for the PTS. My my back was messed up really bad. I mean, I couldn't run fifty yards without my back seizing up and falling on my face. So I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't process that. Where I knew my thinking and my processing was really messed up too. But and I'm like, maybe I'm just getting older. That's what it is. So I had a real hard time struggling. But as I was going through the medical appointments, and they're like, oh yeah, you need to have back surgery, you need to have, uh, you know, sinus surgery, because all the Iraq and Afghanistan, all that gunk has got into your sinuses and basically Mm -hmm. blocked it off to where you can't, like, breathe normal, you're in your sleep, you're, you stop breathing 20 something times. uh, So that's a problem, you know, you're maybe not going to wake up. And then as they do the uh, neurological stuff, I guess, from all the IEDs and IDF, after uh, doing an assessment and stuff like that, they're like, wow, you're, uh you have early signs of dementia at 35 years old because of all the concussions, TBIs. So as that information came to light, I'm like, OK, I do need to be here because the robot needs to be opened up and rewired because the, the robot is, is, you know, inside me is is, is messing up. It's, it's malfunctioning. And did they start dealing with your PTSD at this time? Were they looking after your body and your mind at this point? It was more the body, you know, during that time. I, because of the back and the body and the, the issues and the neurological issues, I couldn't drive because I had this bad twitch in my leg from, as it turns out, it was a one of the discs in my back basically collapsed on a nerve and formed like three layers of scar tissue over the top of it. So my right foot would twitch. So I wasn't able to drive. So the surgeries were the front because I was like oh the mental stuff can and wait and as, after the surgeries were done I was feeling better but I didn't take into the account of what my wife was going through dealing with all my crap for the last 16 17 years and it took its toll on her and you know she ended up committing suicide thankfully you know we were able to get her to the hospital get her treatment get her back on track and now she's doing great then for me it was like okay I'm going to I can be a Marine again. I can take care of her. I don't need to worry about myself. And as we got her back good, I started declining again. And it, it was just a stupid, vicious cycle. But thankfully, you know, shortly after that, I had a great command now, a great support team. And they were like, did the military thing. And they kind of grabbed you up and were like, all right, you're done with this a uh, roller coaster ride you're going to go and, and kind of forced that you're going to go get help now and whether you like it or not you're going to get get better and so glad that i had a command staff like that 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 really put their foot you know in the backside and like get
0: and, and it was at that period you say that that mentally with your ptsd that that was what set you off onto you never fully recover on ptsd because it's always there isn't it but you learn to deal with it and live with it so do you reckon at that point that was when you started your being able to deal with what you had gone through?
1: yeah i i think that was the big thing and, and you know at, at that point i kind of knew you've you've had a great run but it's, it's kind of time to turn the past the torch and be done and kind of get on with life i was really looking forward to to leaving the military and seeing kind of what's what's next you know what's the next chapter hold for me and my wife and but at the same time i knew the clock was ticking and i knew you know july 31st 2015 when the date of the medical retirement was fastly approaching, but I naively thought, you know, because it becomes your, your life. You, I mean, mm. Sunday, you got a haircut Monday through Friday. You did whatever weekends. If you're lucky, you were off, but sometimes you were, I mean, I mean, that's your, your world. Once that door shut behind me in 2015, I was lost. I was like, what is this world? Like, What do I do now?
0: I think every veteran can identify that. Even if they've not had any combat experience, the very fact that you're leaving an organisation that looks after you 24-7, well, define look after. Some <laughs> stuff,
3: well, you're you're institutionalised, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. you're institutionalised.
0: That's exactly institutionalized. the word. Your institution <laughs> you're institutionalised. You're on a set of railway tracks, aren't you? Yeah. And you yeah. just trundle along. Yeah. So You obviously made that move to civilian world, uh, Chris, and then But what inspired you to write your book from terror
1: to triumph? And did you find the process cathartic in any way? Yes and no. Writing the book was actually really great looking back. During the writing of the book, I felt a lot of that sewage starting to boil back up that I thought I had processed and dealt with. And, you know, kind of during the book went back into some treatment for certain issues that arose by writing out these details. Maybe I had hoped that I had forgot, but it, it was still very much you know, a part of it. But writing the book actually kind of happened by, in a way, kind of by accident with the whole COVID uh, outbreak in 2020. I had just started my new job as a uh, case manager with the Veterans Court. Three weeks later, they're like, hey, COVID lockdown, everyone's working remote. You're not allowed to be here. Go home. Three weeks into a job and now I'm I'm learning it by myself. This this will be fun. And so I, I started sitting at home and I'm like, you know, thinking about the deployments, thinking about the past stuff. And certain events started to, certain, the small details that I used to be able to like, oh, the wind was blowing. There's probably 20 leaves that blew across the road. A Coke can started to fade a little bit. And I started worrying like, oh, if I don't get this down, I'm going to forget something. And that would be the worst sin to forget an event that was so influential and impactful. So I started writing it all out and, and progressing through the timeline. And my wife was like, why don't you submit it to see if it becomes a book? And I'm like, yeah, right. Like I, I'm not a, you know, uh, Stephen King. I'm not an author whatsoever. And she's like, no, just you know, whatever. Just submit it and and see what happens. So we submitted it, and then a few weeks later, the publication company came back and said, yeah, we're 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 definitely interested in your book. We want to publish it. There's a thousand books out there. Like if you go to the bookstore, or Amazon, or Google, um, war books or books on yeah, yeah, yeah. conflict, A, B, or C, you're probably going to get, I don't know, 8,000 like, hits instantly. When I did that Google search, though, I was like, where are the books about, not the glory stuff, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. But wh- what have- Team Six. And- <laughs> <laughs> Lone <laughs> yeah. Survivor, uh, Heartbreak Ridge, Full Metal Jacket, you know, all those whatevers. But even Full Metal Jacket in the, what, 80s or 90s ends with them still like walking off to another battle. What is happening back here? Why is nobody talking about it? You know, why is no one talking about the PTS? Why is no one talking about the 22 a day or the guys that are, are killing themselves left and right? Uh, Well, it's funny. I mean,
0: I just want to drop some figures to listeners because, you know, I I consider myself, up to speed in a lot of this stuff but when I started looking into the, the the situation with American service men and women I was really taken aback so as you've already talked about there Chris around about 17 veterans a day commit suicide veteran suicide in America is twice the general population and these are US Department of Veteran Affairs statistics and between 2005 to 2018 89,100 veteran suicides took place. I mean, that is shocking level.
1: Yeah, I mean, 80, and like we kind of discussed before, I think that number is is grossly underestimated. Uh, I, I think it's a lot more. And the VA is doing the best that they can with the amount of people that are, are going back in. But they're so overworked that it's a, a trade-in-street type thing where they come in and like, here's all these pills go, you know, wait, we can, we're doing our best we can. Let's get an appointment, you know, as soon as we can. But hey, three months out, you know, guys are in the parking lot of the VA hospital because they have nothing. They feel there's no hope. They ended up killing themselves in the parking lot of the place that's supposed to treat them. And it's such, and I think that was one of the reasons for the book as well, because thinking to myself, Man, all these great books on conflict! Yay! Yeah, you know all, all the the glory. Woohoo! They you know jumped out of in D Day, but there's, there's nothing no- about the aftermath, though, is there? There's nothing picking up the pieces. And, and there's probably medical books, but there's nothing like a firsthand account of like from a vet's perspective when they when they come home. That vicious cycle of redeploying, redeploying. Uh, there's nothing out there. So I wanted to write a book that was going to, and I had to swallow a lot of pride and a lot of my ego and put out, you know, like, hey, this is the reality. You you may not like it, but this is why me or, you know, call it or like anybody is, you know, isolating away. This is why they're drinking so much. It's not because they're just reacclimating; and they haven't drank in seven months. They're coming back trying to process all these mental these things and and pride and ego is, I think, the leading cause besides the torment, but is a leading cause of the suicide rate because there's so many resources out there that um, – and in the back of the book, I list, I think, like 20 or something like that. There's so much out there that can be helpful if you're willing to swallow your pride, admit, you know what, there is something wrong. I do need to get help. There's something that's clearly not right with me. But in the book, the biggest thing I put is it's okay to not be okay. Because if you go over there, well, just like the firefighters in Oklahoma, firefighters at 9 11, paramedics every day I mean, firemen, police officers, whatever. Like, if they see some of the horrible things that we've seen, they've seen, whatever. and they're not somehow affected by something like they're not there's not an emotional thing where, yeah, you like as a doctor, you have to kind of pull yourself out of the emotional piece. But you, you're you not a robot. You're, you're going to have some lasting thing. But if you don't and you're just like, oh, yeah, I picked up 10 kids. Who cares? You know, then go down to your, your nearest prison and please check yourself in because you're a psychopath and there's something
0: yeah and i think every veteran we have, we've touched on PTSD in his podcast in various episodes quite a few times and what you said there describes the sort of the journey that every veteran with PTSD is taking It's the recognizing it in yourself there's no shame in it talk about it and get help
3: so chris how do uh, listeners get a copy of your book and also have you had any other points for veterans and uh, steering towards help or any top tip a little bit
1: for the vets and thankfully, this book has has helped a lot of people who have picked up the book, have read the book, has either generated, you know, great things like this, being able to come onto a podcast and discuss things. I've had people who I haven't seen or talked to in twelve plus years contact me about, you know, hey, this book has been amazing. Uh, I've given it to my sister-in-law whose husband is dealing with pts and she's now has a better understanding of what he's going through and how to help him that makes it all worth it I, I don't care if I sell a a single book if if it helps 10 people get a better life finish out their military career anything I've put into the book or whatever is just icing on the cake it, it's it absolutely nothing is better or more heartfelt than hearing a success story based on the book that has helped someone else. And I think the biggest thing, if I can nail down, put every vet in one room and just shake them until they understand it, is it that one part. It, it's okay to not be okay. There's no shame in seeking help. Um, I think it takes a bigger person to not sit in a corner and drink yourself to death. And it takes a bigger man to actually, or bigger woman to go and say, you know what? My experiences are relevant. I have a contribution to give. I'm not this monster. It's okay to not be okay. And for me, once I got that help, it was like this big, like life is not as dark and depressing as I I made it out to be. So for the book, you can either Google the title of the book and it pulls up about I don't, seven Google pages. If you punch in terror to triumph and with my name, it'll pull up about six or seven pages of uh, Google hits. It's all over Amazon, Target, Walmart, Kindle. If you like to read on the, your devices, I can't, I'm too, I don't know, TBI. I can't like focus on reading off a tablet. Recently been launched on what's called Audible uh, here in the States. It's a audiobook. Now it's been uh, fully published and it's on Amazon as well. Um, if you just Google or go to Amazon and type in the book, it gives you the option for a paperback, Kindle version, or audiobook. And then there is also, if we can add it maybe as a part like in the description of the podcast, because uh, it's yeah. just easier, www.terrorto triumphbookcom is going to actually be a website that I'm having created that's going to be specific to the book, which will also have blogs or vlogs whatever you want to call it where it's going to discuss you know issues and be a platform for vets families and everything alike to you know go on there discuss topics what's going on how things are going against the grain for you and and that way it's a community to help each other because at the end of the day veteran community is so small if we can help each other because it's like we said it's easier to talk you know, like you and I, Colin, it was easy to communicate. It may not be easy for, you know, someone to go talk to just some random guy in a uh, in the bar having a drink, uh, but they'll they'll open up to other vets like best friends for life. Um, and, and so I want to provide a not only the book, but I want to provide a base for veterans. And my wife, who is a, a licensed military family therapist, she helps military families work through different issues. She's also going to have a spot on the, the website to where... She's helping military families and spouses and kids and all that stuff on there as well. If we can't help each other, there's no stopping that twenty two That number's just going to keep growing and growing. Absolutely. and we've got to do something to, to to slow that down. and I think you know this is one small step, but i but I think the impact that it's having where it's getting people out of their comfort zone and allowing others to understand their loved ones I, I think it's it's a dream come true like i never thought in a million years i would be able to to impact anything by just sharing my story but i think i'm like so far i've helped others salvage their career like get the help so they can do 25 years in the military if they want to or and realize that it's not a stigma where you know in 05 it was a stigma if you say hey i've got issues you're going away they don't have time to deal with that but now Especially with Iraq's over Afghanistan, we all know what's going on there. now is the time to to heal to get you taken care of and not lose sight of that bigger picture and i and I think that's what the book has done
0: oh, that's great, and i think I think the other thing for people to take away from it is you said there you're a published author now, and I think nobody thinks they can do that, but I think you know veterans can do a lot more than they give themselves credit for. Do a podcast. Do it, write a book. It's there. When, when Kev and I started doing this, we never thought we could do a podcast, but we've done it. You've gone can't. one step. Still <laughs> can't, some would say. But you've gone one step further and written a book, and uh, I think it just shows you what people can do when they put their minds to it. And what, what we'll do, Chris, is we'll have all those links to your website and uh, links to where you can get the book from as well.
3: So Kev, this is your favourite part, mate. As usual, we will finish with Desert Island Dates in which our guest gives a choice of book, a film, and luxury item. So, Chris, over to you. What have you chosen for this
1: episode? <clears throat> I think for a book, if I can't take mine, I would love to take... Uh, Echo and Ramadi. Echo, yeah, Echo Ramadi. and Ramadi, who, uh, which was written by a, a really great guy who uh, uh, was in 2006 in Ramadi. He was an officer, and he does a lot of great, um, I think, for... The easy one, the luxury item. If I was on a an island, I would definitely want to take like some survival survival stuff, like just a simple knife, but you know the kind where you can put all that stuff in. Different little tricks, you know. You get the fishing line and the hook. uh, That way you can catch some food. You soak some uh, cotton balls in Vaseline and let them dry out. And what would your film be, Chris? The movie I think it's just a film, and because I got to meet the guy and uh, and talk with him uh, recently. I would take 13 hours of the Benghazi story because I'm good friends on social media and I've went on his podcast. Chris uh, Tonto Peronto, one of the guys that survived Benghazi, you know, we've talked back and forth and I've sent him a signed copy of the book and things like that. So I think I would take that and a great guy who's doing great things as well.
0: I'm going to pick a book that I picked in Northern Ireland. We are going out to a cordon operation. We we're going to be in trenches for like 10 days or whatever. And I was going through the sort of, we had like a I don't know what the Americans call it. We call it a naffy. It was a canteen area sort of thing. And I just literally went through a pile of books. I grabbed this book and I stuck it in my Bergen, my rucksack. And off we went, digging trenches for 10 days in the ground in Northern Ireland. And I pulled this book out and it was called Sympathy to the Devil by Kent Anderson. And it's about a Green Beret uh, in Vietnam. And it covers two tours of duty. And he did something similar to you, Chris. He did his first tour of Vietnam, Special Forces, came back, got out had to join back up again. Very similar reasons uh, as we discussed with you. He had trouble adapting to sevy Street. He felt he was letting his friends down and he wanted to get out there. There's a fantastic paragraph in it when he's comparing the rounds that, that countries use with their national character. And then it, he compares the American 5.56 to the uh, AK-47 7.62 short that the Vietnamese were using. And he says in the book, here's a standard American round. It's slim, lightweight, fast, but a bit unstable. It's the bullet equivalent of the fashion model. Sexy looking, thin and glittering. But if it gets dirty, damp or overheated, it's liable to j- jam on you. It's temperamental, a bit of a prima donna. <laughs> then he holds up an AK round and he goes, here's a Russian bullet short, thick, round in the middle, the peasant women of bullets, sturdy and slow, not easily deflected, dependable, stick it in the mud, put it in the gun, and it'll always shoot. So we are shooting our fashion models at them, and they are firing back with peasant women. I thought that was an absolutely fantastic (laughs) description there. So Kent Anderson, um, he joined the Merchant Navy at 19, he then went... In '68, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, passed special forces selection, and went out and did those tours. And when he came back, he joined the police. And very similar again to you, he he wrote a book. But just part of that, he went and got a Master of Fine Arts in fiction from the University of North Carolina. And after that, he wrote his fiction. He was a fact-based book, but he wrote a fiction-based book. Again, another military guy writing about what he
3: experienced. So, Kev, what would you pick? I haven't chosen a book this week. I oh, chosen. God, you're breaking tradition. You can't do that. I can't. I've done it. It was a book, and strange enough, it was written in 1954 or 58, a book called Red Alert. But how it was known as a film was Dr. Strangelove, directed by Stanley Kubrick, filmed in 1964 in the UK. At the height of the Cold War, it's a... Really good black comedy, satirising this period between the friction, the, the tension between the USSR and the USA. Um, Peter Sellers plays about four parts in it. Absolutely stunning parts. If I you think watch... Chris
0: is probably too young to have seen this.
3: Well, <laughs> I think everyone should see it. Not everybody's as old as us, mate. You're older than me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and also George C. Scott, who played Patton, very straight actor. He plays a comedy part as well. Absolutely superb. I won't spoil yeah. it. Go and watch it. it talks about obviously mutual assured destruction or MAD as it was known and uh it has a great scenario. And um, I'll tell you, you what, Chris, as a special reward to Chris
0: for coming on the podcast and being generous with time, Chris, after the, this podcast, we'll get your address off you of and we'll send you a copy, a DVD of Dr. Strange Love. Dr.
3: Strange Love, absolutely, that'd be Fantastic. awesome, that'd be great. Yeah. And then you could write it back and go, "That was the worst film I no, ever saw." No, no, it, it, <laughs> I, I do believe it's one of the uh, top 100 films recognised in the world. As in,
0: well, we'll have to get Chris's Chris's feedback on that one. Okay, mate, thanks for that, Kev.
3: Well, thank you again, Chris, for coming to us on this podcast, and thank you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of our show notes. You will find us on all the usual suspects, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can write to us via postcards, letters. I'll accept it all. And if you have downloaded us from iTunes or Spotify and liked the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a good review. Bad reviews, don't bother.
0: Yeah, don't bother.
3: <laughs> and then <laughs> anywhere where you get your podcast from. Yeah. No, no, we don't. we don't need bad reviews. <laughs> and thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier.